0: Welcome to the 10th episode of the comic show on monkeys fighting robots and what a special 10th episode do we have for you today we are talking with one of the hottest writers in comics right now Donnie Cates I'm your host Anthony Composto I'm also the editor of the comic book section on monkeysfightingrobots.com joining me a little bit later in the show will be my co-host co-founder of monkeys fighting robots Matthew Sarda if you like the show, please be sure to subscribe on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Feedback is very welcome, so comment, tweet at us, and please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. That's very helpful for our show to get found by new listeners. Guys, as I said, Matt and I sat down. We talked to Donnie Cates. Donny has written for Dark Horse, for IDW, for Heavy Metal Magazine. Most recently, he's done God Country and Redneck at Image. He's also doing Baby Teeth over at Aftershock. And he just got signed to an exclusive deal by a little company known as Marvel. I don't know if you guys have heard of them or not yet. They're pretty new. And he will be taking over both Doctor Strange and Thanos come this fall. We talked to him about all of these things. He was a great guest. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Donny Cates. Donnie, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, of course. Uh, so you just got signed to an exclusive deal with Marvel. So huge congratulations. Can you well, talk you. about that process at all? Was there a storyline that you pitched that sealed that deal? Oh, man,
1: I, I guess you'd have to ask them. You know, I, um, I've been working on Thanos for a while now. I'm actually uh, on like the fourth issue of it or so. Um, and uh, Dr. Strange, I'm, I'm, I'm into it a little bit as well. Um, I, this is, by the way, really odd for me. This is the first interview I've done since I've done this, and so I'm— I'm still in like that don't say anything mode. So it's weird for me to hear my own voice saying I'm writing Thanos out loud. (laughs) um, You know, I had, I had turned in a few scripts and um, you know, I, I don't really know what the um, decision on their end was to uh, put a ring on it, but I was having a great time. I mean, all my editors are, are great. You know, so far I mean, it's just been fantastic. And like, I got to say, you know, knock on wood, but everything I've pitched so far, they've gone for. And, um, I have just been pitching the most bananas stuff, um, things that I just thought not in a million years they would ever let me do. And they've just been like, yeah, that's great. So I don't know. Maybe it was just that. Maybe they responded to me getting in there and taking a lot of really crazy chances and trying to do some stuff that, as a Marvel fan myself, I've never really seen before and things that I've kind of wanted to do for a really long time. So, I don't know. So far, so good, though.
2: When we were at Megacon, we spoke with Dan Slot and we also talked with Scott Snyder. And they both had two different philosophies on characters, like what makes up a character and what elements are untouchable. Mm-hmm. Where do you kind of stand with, like, Thanos or Doctor Strange? What are the elements that you think make up Doctor Strange? And is there anything that if you, like, took one of those elements out, that would not be Thanos or that would not be Doctor Strange anymore?
1: Well, okay. So, on Doctor Strange... uh, you're not going to understand right now why I can't really answer that question. <laughs> but in, in October or so, you'll understand, you'll, you'll come back to this and say, oh, that's why he was being dicey about that. Because, you know, I don't think it's a secret at this point that in Doctor Strange, we have a bit of a new status quo. Loki is the Sorcerer Supreme, and where we find the good doctor when, we, uh, when my run picks up, a very unusual place a place we've never seen him before and if i were to run my mouth off right now and talk about all the things you couldn't do with dr strange you would read that issue and go well you're a liar (laughs) like (laughs) you've just you've just turned the apple cart upside down i will say on thanos you know um it's gonna be a lot easier for me to write uh for me to answer um thanos is a character that I'm kind of weirded out how much I connect to him and how much I kind of understand his character. I keyed into what makes him and what makes him tick kind of right away. You know, because like when you read a Marvel comic book or a DC comic book on that first page, it's the recap page or the title page. There's always that little blurb above the character, you know, on Spider-Man. It's Peter Parker got bit by right a radioactive spider and now he saves the day, blah, 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 with great power, blah, 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 blah right? on Thanos that little blurb above his says you know he's constantly consumed with you know a thirst for power and conquest that's like all it says and I was like well that's pretty easy (laughs) like I get that you know and um and you know Thanos is the Thanos story that 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 we're doing is called Thanos Triumphant and it's the first thing I ever pitched to them when they when they called and they offered me Thanos, it was funny. Uh, Jordan White, who's my editor, he, when, when, when he called me and offered me the gig, he was like, you know, well, you know, just you know, take the weekend and you know, think about what you might want to do, but we'd really like to have you on the book and everything. And in that same phone call when he offered me the book, I kind of off the top of my head was like, well, hey, I, you know, I do have this one thing that I think would be really cool. And I kind of pitched him the idea. And on that phone where he offered me the gig, he was like, yeah, that's awesome. Let's do that. And so it was really easy. I say easy. I then had to go and write a 14-page document outlining my entire thing. But, you know, what can you take away from Thanos? I mean, the cool thing to me about Thanos is that as far as the bad guys in the Marvel U, no one has ever come closer to just winning than Thanos. I mean he did, right? I mean he he got the he got the Infinity Gems and he killed half of all people in the galaxy, like in existence, right? And you know, Thanos's biggest bad guy is not, you know, any of the heroes, it's Thanos. Like he always slips up on himself, right? Um and so, you know, what we're going to be doing is 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 imagining a world in which, you know, Thanos doesn't trip himself up and he just he just does it. So, I know that I you asked the question, and then I talked a lot, but managed to not answer a single thing that you that you asked me, but that's <laughs> that's kind of all I can say right now without telling you guys things that I'm not supposed to say.
0: yeah, no, Marvel will be very proud to hear that answer I'm sure do they give you any kind of outline of places that you can and can't go with these characters because they're so prominent in the films right now, and infinity war is coming out no in in, in my experience the
1: the films haven't, haven't touched. I mean, I'm, you know, I might be an outlier. I might be, uh, that might happen. You know, I, I've not been privy to those conversations. I've never, I've never been told that I, um, well, okay. Here's the thing. I've never been told that I can't do anything so far. That's what i was talking about when I was saying knock on wood, because you guys, I'm serious. Every single, and look, ask me again in a year. I'm sure I'll be like, okay, I pushed it too far. I found, I found where the edge is, but so far I've pitched things And I've, I've honestly, I've pitched it just to say that I did. And I was just like, well, they're going to cut this down. You know, they're going to get rid of this thing. They're going to make me change this character. They're not going to let me kill this person. They're not going to let me bring this person back. You know, I'm just using examples, by the way. I'm not saying I'm doing those things. Um,
2: (laughs) That was, we already um, have that quoted and tweeted out. Like (laughs) you're bringing back people and killing people off. (laughs) Um,
1: And, uh, you know, I've just put them in there because as I'm writing the outline, they entertain me to put them in the outline. And I just I sent them in with the understanding in my head that they're going to get cut out or replaced. And then to my utter shock, they came back and they were like, yeah, let's do all this. I was like, all of it for real. Like, you're really going to let me do that? And they were like, yeah. And so, you know, with Thanos, especially man, Thanos is, you know, it's kind of hard to write a Thanos book without it being brutal. You know, and so like every issue of Thanos, things just gotten darker and darker uh, and more intense. And I keep on waiting for Marvel to look at a script and go like, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? So far, that hasn't happened. So I keep on pushing. Like every script, I just like, well, we'll see how much more we can do here. So to answer your question, no, man. Like I haven't. Nothing has been told to me like, hey, let's not do that because this movie's coming out. You know. And you'd think it was going to happen to anybody, it happened to me, right? Because I'm, you know, uh, helming two books that are going to be pretty prominent as far as, you know, film adaptations coming up soon. You know, Thanos has never been more popular than he has right now. So, uh, to my knowledge, no.
0: And it's very fitting that you just signed this deal with Marvel because you you, you interned with them at the start of your career, right? I did, yeah. um, Yeah, in like
1: 2000, oh God, uh, 2010. Um, I was an intern at Marvel, and the coolest thing about it is that uh, I was Jordan White's intern, Um, and Jordan is my editor now uh, on Thanos. And so, you know, that's helped out a lot, i got to say, because Jordan and I have kept up a, you know, a working relationship, um, really friendly. You know, um, I've always sent him my comics and stuff. Not in any kind of way of like trying to get a job or anything. It's just because I really like Jordan, and we've always stayed in touch. And every time I've seen him at a con or anything, he's always just been really nice. And and so when Thanos came down the pike, and Thanos, Thanos. Even though Thanos got announced second, Thanos came first. Um, like I said, I've known Thanos longer, so um, I was working with Jordan for. Been working with Jordan for a while now. And so yeah, it's been it's been really great working with all the people that I used to go get coffee for. On the in um, in San Diego, I was on my first Marvel panel. And um, back in the day when I was an intern, the office that I was an intern for was the Hulk office and the Ultimate office, and they kind of shared one. And so it was Mark Panicia and um, uh, uh, Sana Monet and uh, Jordan White. So I worked with them a lot. And on my first Marvel panel, I did Sana was. Seated right next to me. And so I'm sure while it was a huge thrill for me, she probably, you know, didn't care as much as I did because I was just an intern kid. But she took the time on the panel, and I'll always love her for this. Uh, she took the time on the panel to let everyone know in the audience that I was a terrible intern, which is really <laughs> sweet of her. Really, really sweet. <laughs>
0: We we saw Jordan White speak actually he was uh, he was at Star Wars Celebration here in Orlando this oh, yeah. past year and he he sounded it was awesome just to hear him talk. How did that internship change your perception of how comics are made? Like, how, how did that push you more into a creator side, learning how everything gets done? I'm really glad that you asked that because my internship, while wow. It didn't, you know,
1: ame- you know, a lot of people hear that I'm, I'm, I'm exclusive at Marvel now, and they find out that I was an intern there, and they, I suppose, see some sort of a correlation between those two as to how I got my, you know, exclusive and how I got my writing job there. And while, yes, it, 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 it did it did bring a level of, you know, uh, familiarity uh, with some of the editors there, um, you know, anyone who's kind of looked at my career and the path that I've taken notices that I didn't. I didn't start getting my first Marvel jobs until I was, you know, that was 2010. And no, I mean, it's, what, is it 2017 now? I don't ever leave the house. I don't know what day it is. So I, you know, it's taken a long time, and I really had to go out there and prove myself, you know. Marvel's not in the habit of just giving jobs out to their friends. So to answer your question, the biggest thing that I took away from that was, it's, it sounds really, it sounds really lame, and it sounds like it's something that's just so obvious. But in, like, my first week or so there, I popped my head into Axel Alonzo's office. And at the time, Axel wasn't the editor in chief just yet, but Axel was still very much working on, um, some of my favorite books at the time, which was like Jason Aaron's Punisher Run, you know, which is just phenomenal. And at the time it was, um, that office was Axel and Sebastian Gerner, who you guys probably know is the writer of Shirtless Bear Fighter. These days, uh, Sebastian um, was uh, was an editor there, and a great guy. He was one of the in, he was one of the editors over there that was just always just as as cool as he could be to the intern. So uh, yeah, so shout out to him. He's a great guy. Anyway, I popped my head into Axel's office, and I was just a very annoying intern. And I just said, um, I was like, "Hey, Axel um, and Sebastian, I just want to let you guys know that that you know, Jason Aaron run on Punisher is just fantastic," and I'm just a Just a huge fan on that. It's a great book. And they both looked up and they said, oh, thank you for saying that, man. Like, we're really proud of that book. And I know that what I just said doesn't sound like a breakthrough, right? But what occurred to me in that moment was these editors work on these books just as much, if not sometimes more so than the writers and the artists and the colorists and the whole creative team. And I, and I had never – there was always kind of a disconnect there to me as just a fan of, like, oh, there's editorial teams, and then there's creative teams, you know? And them – me saying, the, hey, that book's great, and them saying, hey, thank you for that. They took pride in it the same way that these days I take pride when someone says, hey, man, that issue of this was great, or that this issue of that was great. I, you know, I take pride in that. And so it really – it really changed my outlook on the editorial staff, especially on like big two books, you know, a lot of times the editorial staff, because they are somewhat to like a casual fan um, kind of faceless, they, they end up kind of shouldering the blame for a lot of these things. There's a lot of people out there who think that the editorial staff are the ones who are, you know, a lot of like, they're the bad guys somehow. They're the ones who are, slowing things down or putting in, you know, their two cents. And like, they have like agendas and all these things. These are words that get like thrown around a lot on Twitter and stuff. And what I really, really learned from being at Marvel was that these editors and really everyone there on staff, they are just like you. They are just like me. They are just people who are extremely passionate about this art form who are just day in, day out trying to make the best art that they possibly can. And that was something that was lost on me until I saw them doing it every day. And these ideas that people have about the editorial staff having these agendas that they push and like bullying creators around and everything, if that happens, I never saw it when I was there and I was there every single day. I mean, I was there, I was like the first person there and sometimes was told to go home because I was there too late and I never saw it. All I ever saw was a bunch of really cool, Really nice people trying to make really great comics, and I think that that's a part of things that a lot of people don't see, and a lot of people gloss over a lot of the time.
2: Yeah, no, the editors are they 're kind of like NFL coaches they're, they're at the break of dawn and they leave at night, and that 's what they do and, and you're like uh-huh. like you said, they, they don't get a lot of credit. I wrote a, a very expletive filled. Uh, op-ed about Twitter trolls after the milkshake incident. Uh, since I own, mm-hmm. since I own monkeys fighting robots, I'm allowed to throw all the right. curse words in. Sure. <laughs> Do, it wouldn't. Is there a conversation about this stuff at Marvel? Do they talk to you about how to handle yourself on Twitter? Like, what is the state at Marvel when it comes to the stupid trolldom that's going on right now?
1: I couldn't really speak to it, man. Honestly, you know, um, you know, the only, I mean, I, I, look, I have, I have friends in the industry. Who, uh, in the, in the look, anytime that you start doing books at the big two that are big books that are get a lot of attention, you know, the big two characters, the fan base, there's a great deal of ownership that they feel. And I shouldn't say they, I should say we, um, because there's no, there, there's no bigger like Marvel or DC fan out there than me, man. Like, I love this stuff. And absolutely, it's easy to get caught up in it. And I think that that is just what we were talking about, that there's like this, there's a lot of people who don't understand these are human beings. They're just trying to do the best job that they can. And they get lost in this idea of the, you know, anonymous nature of social media. And I think that, you know, I I think that anyone obviously knows that these are things that would never be said to someone's face. You know, they they think of, oh, this is a big-time Marvel editor, and they tweeted them like they're tweeting it, Beyonce, <laughs> you know, like, well, oh, well, she has billions of fans and stuff. She's not going to see me, you know, being an asshole. Um, yeah, we see it all. Like, we see all of it, you know, and we have feelings like anybody else does, and, you know, that, that kind of gets lost sometimes when people see a character first and then see you. And people can kind of hide behind this ownership that they feel that a certain character uh, is being mistreated or or is being, you know, presented in in an untoward light. I would remind people to understand that column books are cyclical and that anything that you're mad about right now in a year won't be there anymore. And uh, I don't know, this is a really tough question for me to answer, because to answer your question, I don't know, man. Um, You know, I tend to not really get involved with, twitter beefs as it were I, I don't really engage with negativity on twitter I, my kind of outlook on things like twitter is that you know your twitter and your facebook are revolving billboards for who you are as a person and if you know people go and look at your billboard and it's filled with negativity and you engaging with negative people then that's what you're advertising you're advertising negativity and negativity breeds you know the same people are going to react with the same kind of thing so if you look on my Twitter, all you're going to see is me saying thank you and hyping cool things and retweeting my friends and things of that. I'm not trying to say that I'm better than anybody. I'm just saying that that's I don't really know uh, from trolls at this point. Again, knock on wood. I promise I'm going to do something in some of my model books. that's going to piss someone off. I promise. But um, yeah, it's just the world that we live in right now. You know what ha- what happened to Heather and what is continuing to happen to her. Is an absolute disgrace. It's abysmal. It's, uh, it's embarrassing and it's disgusting. And it breaks my heart every single time that I see her having to go through that. I don't know her personally, I've never worked with her, but like I said, everyone at Marvel is just trying to do the best they can. They're just nerds and geeks like us trying to make good comics. You know, that's, that's the, that's the long and the short of it. They're not the enemy. And so it breaks my heart whenever I see people who, wear the badge of the art form that I love and use it to do hateful things. It's always, it's always, it's, really, it's always really upsetting, you know, but again, I mean, I try and try and stand up with people that I love and ignore the people who, you know, uh, I don't agree with and fight for the things I care about. And I think as long as I am still doing that, I don't think that Marvel has any, any need to kind of tell me how I'm supposed to purport myself on Twitter. I don't know. I don't know if some of my friends who have become, you know, kind of lightning rods for hate and everything have been spoken to. I imagine that in some cases I'm sure Marvel has has spoken to them. I'm not sure. I don't know. I've never heard that to answer your question. I will let you know when I find out when I piss someone off, I promise.
0: (laughs) No, I think that's a very healthy attitude, just not engaging. So you tell these grand fantasy stories often with, with gods mm-hmm. and vampires and demonic raccoons that I love. <laughs> but uh. but they're, st- they're still very relatable and they're accessible because at their core they're about family. And mm. I've read interviews where you talk about drawing from your personal life for your creator-owned work. Mm-hmm. Are you drawing from your own life for the upcoming Marvel titles as well?
1: Yeah, it's hard not to... For me, at least, you know, there's certain themes um, to Thanos and Doctor Strange both that uh, I'll be able to speak to a lot more uh, when the issues come out and I can kind of, uh, they're still so shrouded in mystery of what we're doing, you know, but certainly in both of those books, there's big, big chunks of my life, big chunks of things that I've been through that I've been able to bring into it. Uh, you know, luckily enough, the the two stories that I've been lucky enough to tell so far, uh, the ones you guys know about, um, <laughs> have have both kind of tapped into things that I've, I've very much felt at the, uh, at the time. Thanos' constant quest for power and uh, this notion that, you know, throughout the years he's reached the top of the mountain and looked out and said, is this it? You know, is this all this is going to be? Like, I'm, I've gotten where I want to be and it's not enough. Well, certainly as someone who... Uh, at the beginning of 2017 was a creator that no one cared about. And then God country came out and suddenly by the, by June, you know, I had an exclusive contract with Marvel, which is something, which is something that I've wanted my entire life. You know, certainly those feelings of getting, <laughs> getting what you want and looking out and being like, Oh, that's faster than I thought it was going to take. Like what, <laughs> you know, what happens now? What, what do I want now that I have the thing that I have wanted? You know, um, uh, and again, I've, I'll be able to speak to these kind of, uh, themes and, um, uh, specific tones and things that I've been able to bring through when people start to read them. Thanos and Doctor Strange both have very different tones. Um, you know, Thanos is always going to be, uh, very big and very epic and, uh, you know, I mean, it's hard to, hard to step into shoes that Jim Starlin filled and not want to you know it, it go as big and as 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 brutal and as epic as possible, and then Dr Strange, uh while he has all of those elements as well, this particular Dr. Strange has a very different kind of tilt to it, so I think that when you read dr strange you'll 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 get what I'm talking about you'll read it and go, oh, okay I, uh, okay, Donnie's going through some shit here <laughs>
0: <laughs> Come and take it speaking of God country is the slogan yeah. that you chose for that book, or that was kind of adopted for that book. And it has r- roots in real Texas history Absolutely. as a Texan, as a proud Texan mm-hmm. from what I can take. Yeah. What does come and yeah. take it mean to you personally?
1: Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, come and take it is a, is a flag that is, that is flown here in Texas and, uh, has its roots in a uh, particularly famous cannon, uh, that we kind of, uh, uh, stole and, uh, very much goaded someone into coming and getting back from us, and uh, you know Texas is weird because we were super proud of the Alamo, which is a fight that we super lost. <laughs> you know, to answer your question, it's not something that I—it's not a personal ethos that I that I that I kind of wear around. It was just something that you know when I was writing God Country and I started to kind of outline it, got to that moment where you know Aristas is. Is, uh, talking to Emmett and I, when I, when I got to that scene, I was like, well, how do I not do this? Like, how do I not have him say, come and take it? And I battled around with that phrase a lot because I was like, well, not all of my readers are from Texas and are going to understand what the hell I'm, I'm doing there, you know? But what I found, which is very interesting is that so many people online responded to that, to that scene and, uh, started using the hashtag and stuff. And, uh, I wonder how many of them actually keyed into the, spe- the, the specific nature of the quote. But, you know, the come and take it, uh, phrase really ended up working very well for that series. Um, the, the idea of, you know, this was kind of a stand in for Image Disease, you know, um, every god in that book is kind of a, a metaphor for a larger idea, you know, Aris is the god of war uh, was a stand-in for Alzheimer's and that he is this constant the kind of raging force that wants to take the sword and, you know, via the sword Emmett's life and uh, his name and, you know, who he is and the ability to know who his family is away from him. And so he was very much Alzheimer's. And so the idea of come and take it, this idea that Emmett's not going to stand around and, and and let himself be run over by this thing that he's going to face it and he's going to fight it, you know? And if they, if they want to take these things from him, he's not going to let it go, you know? Ended up working very well for it, so.
2: I'm from New York. I grew up about 90 miles outside of the city, so I was a huge Marvel Comics fan, and, and I just remembered, like, New York City being this, like, mecca of all the heroes, and it was just out of reach for me to where, like, I could visualize all this stuff, but now the industry is, is global, and Jason Aaron and Robert Kirkman have carved out a Southern rock niche that you're adding more content to. Uh, and yeah. being from Texas, how has that influenced your writing style?
1: Oh, I don't know. You know, I'll say this. Like, I, I never, I, you know, I've written a number of books prior to both God Country and Redneck, and they never really had a whole hell of a lot to do with my state. You know, Stan Lee tells this story uh, as he's wont to do about how, you know, when he was writing for the majority of his career, he was writing, you know, cowboy comics and romance comics. And right before he was going to give up writing comic books, you know, forever and get out of it, him and Joan had a conversation. And he was like, well, I'm just going just to try telling the stories that I want to tell and, um, you know, give it a shot. And if it do- doesn't work, I'm going to leave. And you know, if it does work, that'll be cool. But, you know, to hell with everybody. I'm going to do whatever I want. And whatever the hell Stanley wanted to do was Spider-Man, X-Men, Fantastic Four, The Hulk. You know, it was everything that we've ever loved, right? And he he just got to a place where he trusted himself and was just like, I'm going to write the things that are, you know, kind of my passion. And, I, I you know, I wrote Buzzkill and Ghost Fleet and Interceptor and all these books and I wrote some Star Trek and stuff like that. And... um you know, I, a couple of years ago, almost three years ago now, I had this kind of, um, I don't know, weird, kind of a profound life-threatening health event, and uh, I'm fine now, everything's cool, uh, but at the time, things were not going to be very cool, and for whatever reason, I came out of that experience, and God Country was born out of that. God Country was born out of this idea of me, uh, you know, um, getting to a place where I very much thought that I was not going to be able to be the person that I wanted to be anymore and that I was going to be taken care of and all these very scary things. And so when I got healthy, when I got out of it, God Country kind of spouted out of that. And for whatever reason, like kind of back to back, I started writing these two stories, one was God Country and one was Redneck, that were both about families, that were both about legacy. And I decided to set both of them in Texas and started to kind of lean into a dialect into a way of speaking and a way of telling stories that I was familiar with and was more akin to how I speak and how I'm being very formal with you guys and trying to sound as smart as I possibly can be <laughs> but with, a, with with like all my dirtbag friends around here man I'm country as fuck so, um, I, <laughs> so I, I just, I just kind of leaned into uh, a, a vocabulary that I'm more familiar with and a way of speaking and like I said a way of telling stories that I I relate to and I'm drawn to, you know, while also peppering in those things that I grew up on, which were Jack Kirby, you know, fourth world comics and, you know, uh, cool vampire stories and, you know, cowboy stories and things like that, you know? So I don't know. I'd add those ended up being the two books that have, have, you know, kind of so far touched base that have kind of landed the hardest with people who follow my work. I don't know if, those two things are correlated. I don't know if uh, I finally started you know, tapping into some stuff that was a little bit more truthful to who I am, and that's what connected with people. Uh, truth be told, I don't know why those two books uh, have been as well-received as they have been. I know why I like them, but it's, it's, it's always very strange to see how far they've kind of reached. So I don't know. I think I just got to a place where I wanted to start telling the stories that I would want to read, and that seems to have worked so far. So that,
2: that's the Jason Aaron philosophy. Uh, every time I've asked oh, really? him that question, that's, he says the same exact thing. Like, I just write mm. the stories that I want to read.
1: Well, I got to tell you, man, I will say this. You know, I get compared to not specifically Jason Aaron, uh, although that does happen, which is, you know, it's. It's not it's not a huge stretch as far as content goes. Jason Aaron's a way better writer than I will ever be, but you know uh, we get compared to like Southern Bastards a lot and everything, um, which is a phenomenal comparison, and I'm 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 happy to take it because Southern Bastards is my favorite comic book on the stands. And I will say that um, you know Jason Aaron's rise to prominence and reading. I've been following Jason since The Other Side, which is one of the first, uh, I think the first miniseries he ever did. Before that, he had done one thing at Marvel. He did a, he had won a talent contest and won, uh, wrote one issue of Wolverine. But I've been following him since The Other Side, and I, you know, it'd be hard pressed for me to sit here and say that his writing hasn't influenced me. But more than, than his actual writing, seeing a book like Scout, seeing a book like Southern Bastards, And seeing that that kind of storytelling is valid and that that kind of setting that is, like you said, kind of very dissimilar from what we've been kind of raised on with New York and, you know, uh, stories like that set in big cities and stuff. And seeing something like Southern Bastard, which is so eloquently done and so raw and uh, very, very Southern, um, was absolutely inspiring. Like seeing that book and being like, wow, that counts. Like you can do that. Like people respond to that. People like that. You know, I don't think that there would have been a redneck, especially not in the form that it is taken without people like Jason doing what they've done. You know, so I'm all for it.
0: You're talking a lot about God Country and Redneck, and I love both those books. But personally for me, Baby Teeth is also – that's been one of my favorite series month after month. Like that's top of my pull oh, yeah? list kind of Great. material. And oh, yeah. I really love the choice to tell the whole story in flashback with Sadie recording a story for her son. What, mm-hmm. what was your thought process behind doing that? Because I feel like that might be harder than telling a linear story. You know, you run the risk <laughs> of writing harder. yourself into a corner. <laughs> it's way
1: harder, man. It's so hard. Although comparatively, from the other books that I'm writing, right now I'm writing five, five? Come on. Yeah, five, five. Um, and um, Baby Teeth is kind of the book that I save as a, as a palette um, because it's, comparatively speaking, easier. Than writing like a you know two hundred year old really wise vampire, or uh, a thousands year old you know space conqueror, or the sorcerer supreme and the god of lies like this is all so hard hard to write you know, and so to be honest there's uh, there's an end game with baby teeth that I uh, there's a mm, how do I dance around this without telling you anything. There's a reason why she's recording that. There's a reason why she is where she is. The the first issue ends with her in Palestine a year in the future recording this note to her son. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason she seems very scared at the beginning of that issue. She seems very um, hesitant to do so. There's a reason that she said, I'm not going to be around for very long. And every single issue of that book is dropping more clues as to that mystery. And it's going to be very rewarding upon a reread once that we're working to that moment. The whole book is in service of the first page of the first issue. We're going to work right up to that moment. And then we're going to, we're going to see exactly why she's doing that. And that's, uh, it's not coming very soon, but we're going to get there. And uh, once it happens, new things are going to come to light, things that people are not going to see coming. There's a lot more going on in that book than we've talked about. Um, there's a lot more going on than anyone knows. It's a big, big, big uh, puzzle box, that book. And uh, so while, yes, it's, in certain respects, it is harder to write that book in that, with that kind of narrative uh, structure, but it's all very intricately planned out. I'm not I'm not just making stuff up as I go along. I know that when I start dropping hell raccoons out of the sky, it might seem like I'm just making shit up. But I promise I'm not. I promise if you were to talk to anyone at Aftershock who knows what the long game is on that book, every issue I turn in, we're inching slowly towards a big thing uh, that's coming. So I know I didn't really I know it's frustrating. <laughs> but the whole book is kind of supposed to be frustrating. It's kind of um I like the idea that uh, Sadie even though she's narrating the entire book, she is still just 16, you know, and she's she's doing her best to 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 explain things to you, uh the reader and uh and to Clark in the future. So She's doing the best she can, and sometimes that's going to result in her not being adequately able to express or to explain stuff, uh, as seen in the Hell Raccoon uh, scene. But uh, that Hell Raccoon's super important. It's so important, you guys. And, yeah, I think the next issue is true. What is it? Issue four is coming out next? Issue four is brutal. Uh, it's is a tough one. And then uh, the end of the arc is issue five, and then we're gonna. The next arc is, I mean, even though I'm writing Doctor Strange and Thanos and all these crazy books, issue six of Baby Teeth is maybe the most insane thing I've ever done. Uh, It's it's insane. So uh, I'm gonna shut up about that book until, uh, 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 unless I uh, you know start saying things I shouldn't say. Uh, But good to hear that you're enjoying it. That's awesome. I feel like I don't I don't I don't hear as much about Baby Teeth as I do about the other books.
2: And you just brought up some things about the concept of baby teeth. Because we, we just reviewed it uh, our last episode. And and I, I said, I was like, I really hope that Donnie isn't like the writers from Lost and, like, doesn't know where the <laughs> end game is with that. But you talked about kind of, like, the leaving hints for the book and everything like that. And we're, like, normally we're kind of taught writing-wise to, like, you got to hook the reader each issue, each issue kind of thing. And this is more of a slow burn that's going to have oh, yeah. a payoff later on, like, Where's that thought process with like aftershock and you like because I mean, you're fighting for dollars when it comes to th- these things uh, with the comic book, so like that slow burn, like that's got to be a tough sell kind of, sort of maybe I don't know.
1: yeah, sure. I mean I you know it's it's absolutely not a book that I could have done three years ago, two years ago. you know, I had to build up a certain level of trust with the editorial staff and you know with Mike Martin and Lee Kramer the guys who run the show over there when i when i pitched this book to them like that pitch document is like is the bible i mean it it's locked up under fucking you know under key <laughs> man it it has every reveal in it and i i i in the initial pitch document it outlines every beat every every turn every twist every issue and yeah, I mean, again, you know, those are guys who had read my work that came to me and wanted to try and get something going together. Of course, I wanted to work with Aftershock. I had been, you know, uh, uh chasing them in regards of just like making sure that they um that my work got in front of them and so I really like I've always really liked the books that Mike Martz puts out and I've I've really enjoyed the uh, uh the output that Aftershock has uh, uh has done and the quality of books they've done. So, you know, when I pitched Baby Teeth, there was never really any concern about, hey, we need to, we need to, we need to hit the ground running a little bit faster. We need to, we need to start turning over cards faster. We need to start, you know, um, revealing things faster. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew what the tone of it was going to be. And, you know, yeah, I guess it's a different book. I don't know. I guess it's got a little bit different pacing than, certainly it's got a different pacing than a lot of the other books that I've done. But you got to keep in mind that like every other book that I've ever done, I've been really under the gun as far as like, you know, I pitched a book that was an ongoing and the publisher came back and said, you have four issues, you know, or you have 12 issues or eight issues, you know. And so I've had to I've had to really get things done, really get to the end of it, because I knew that we we only had a certain number of issues with baby teeth, you know, actor um it's it's uh it's sold very well so far, and so they're they're perfectly happy with letting me take my time and um and 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 plot out a longer course because we know it's going to be around you know baby teeth is a is a is a kind of a you know baby teeth and redneck are two books that I have plotted out you know through like issue fifty and Redneck, I'm already, I think I'm turning in issue 17 here in the next few months, or I guess this month. So, like, we're crazy far ahead, and we're very far ahead on baby teeth. So, you know, fingers crossed, obviously, you know, if no one, if people stop reading it tomorrow, the sales bottom out, then that'll be a problem. But uh, so far, so good. Things are going, things are going great. So, You know, that's not to say that things aren't going to be revealed. Like things are, there's things that need to be revealed that need to be talked about, and we'll get there along along the way. But uh, rest assured, it's not a lost type of a situation. (laughs) We know exactly what's going on, and so one of those things again that once you you know reread the entire series, you'll be like, holy shit, that was always right there in front of me. Like he was telling me the answers. From like issue two, that's crazy. So, so yeah, hang in there, everyone. Hang in there. We're gonna, we're gonna get there.
0: I promise. Donnie, thank you for your time and best of luck with all your future projects. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This has been fun. That was Donnie Cates. Again, God, Country, Redneck, and Baby Teeth are all in stores now. You can check them out and be sure to pick up his Thanos and Doctor Strange when they come out this fall, guys. No uh, extended reviews this week from us, but I do have some reading recommendations that you can pick up today. Redneck Issue 5 is out. If you just listen to our interview and you think Donny Cates sounds cool and you're interested in Redneck, good news. As soon as this episode is over, you can head down to your local comic shop. You can pick up the first five issues and catch up on one of the, one of the best series of the year so far. Also out from Image is The Hard Place Issue 1. You guys know I love my Image number ones. Manny Gomez is going to have a full review of this up on monkeysfightingrobots.com. It's a crime book, it's a heist book, it's about a driver that just got out of jail. He wants to live a clean life, but as always is in these stories, just when you think you're out, they're gonna pull you right back in. Then from Marvel we have Generations, The Unworthy Thor, the Mighty Thor, issue one. Uh these generation books have been kind of hit or miss. I've been seeing a lot of frustration from fans. They're feeling that they're they're out of place, they're nonsensical, they don't really have any repercussions, they don't matter, they're just weird one-offs that were built up to be these amazing things. This one, the Thor one, supposedly is the one that matters. If you're going to get one, this is the one to get. Jason Aaron's writing it. He's the one who is spearheading the whole Legacy event. And again, just from what I've heard, this Generations book is going to have actual repercussions in the Marvel Universe. Whether that's in Legacy or just his Thor book, uh, is yet to be seen. And then from uh, their distinguished competition from DC, we have Nightwing The New Order Issue 1. This is written by Nightwing veteran Kyle Higgins. In 2028, Nightwing took away 90% of the world's superpowers. Flash forward another 12 years, he is now spearheading an organization that tracks down and subdues metas. Not much is given as to why he's doing this. It seems kind of out of character, but it's still a really good story. Kyle Higgins really gets this character, and it's really uh, it's engaging and intriguing to find out why Dick Grayson has, has done what he's done, and I'm really interested to see where this goes. And then I also just wanted to follow up real quick on Generation Gone. A few weeks ago, Matt and I reviewed Generation Gone, Issue 1 from Image. We had very different feelings on it. Matt had some very very strong feelings if you go back and listen to that episode. I just wanted to follow up on Issue 2 and let you guys know what I think. This book is still okay. I can't say it's great. I can't say it's shit. Uh, the writing is very expository. There's weight, it's too stilted. It's very dense. It's not how people really talk, I feel like. The art is also very hit or miss for me, but I'm interested. I'm probably going to give it one more issue to f- truly sell me. Uh, I do want to know what's up with these millennials, why the government agent gave them superpowers. You're learning a little bit more, uh, little by little. But again, it's not great. It's not terrible. If you want to check it out, uh, if, you know, if it's a light week for you and you just want something to read, Go ahead and pick it up. All right, guys, that's it for me. Thank you all very much for listening, and we will be seeing you all next week. Once again, there are several ways to continue the conversation after the show. Follow us on Twitter at monkeys underscore robots. You can look at all of our silly photos on Instagram at monkeys fighting robots. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore great underscore ace. My co-host Matt is also on Twitter at Matthew Sardo. The biggest compliment we receive is when the subscriber number goes up on Blog Talk Radio, on iTunes, on Stitcher. And please, as I said earlier, we would greatly appreciate a review of our show on iTunes that is very helpful for us to get found. And as always, the best way to listen to the show is on our website, monkeysfightingrobots.com. Well, that was fun. Who's for Chinese? There are so many people that made the 10th episode of the comic show on Monkeys Fighting Robots a success. Thank you again to Donnie Cates for taking the time to talk to us. Special shout out to my co-host, Matt Sardo. Jessica Wynn designed the Monkeys Fighting Robots logo. Are you a monkey or are you a robot? The staff at Visual Realm built our website and keeps us up and running. And to all of our friends, all of our family, and all of the wonderful people on the interweb that listen to us, thank you very much for your support. I'm Anthony Composto, and this is Monkeys Fighting Robots.